I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, as we prepare our minds and our hearts for the observance of the Lord's table. Psalm 22. Many of you are familiar with the name James Vernon McGee. James Vernon McGee is the voice of the Through the Bible radio program that has aired for years on WCTS and some 800 other stations across the country translated into some 100 different languages and aired around the world. J. Vernon McGee was the pastor of the Church of the Open Door in downtown Los Angeles for 21 years. And attached to that pulpit of that church at that time, I don't know that this is still the case, but in that day, on that pulpit, in that church, only visible to the preacher was a small placard with the words of John 12, verse 21. And there in the pulpit, John 12, 21 was printed. It said this. It said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And everyone who stepped into that pulpit of that church to preach was challenged by that little verse. Sir, we would see Jesus. Show us Jesus. And that's what I'd like to do this evening from Psalm 22. The Old Testament scriptures are threaded with prophetic anticipation of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And whether we notice it or not, everything in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, that is three categories of the Old Testament scriptures, point us to Jesus Christ. Before his ascension into heaven in Luke chapter 24, Jesus said to his disciples, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. And I wonder if in that day, at that time, with those disciples, Jesus didn't, in fact, exposit Psalm 22 to his disciples, for they speak of of Jesus Christ. I want us to see the prophetic picture of the Messiah in the most familiar of the Messianic Psalms, and that is Psalm 22. This evening, I want us to see Jesus. I've titled my message, The Suffering Savior. Let me pause briefly for prayer and then we'll look at Psalm 22. God in heaven, I pray that you would keep us near the cross, beneath the cross, at the foot of the cross, with our eyes lifted to gaze upon Jesus. Lord, I pray that in these moments as we read from Psalm 22 and then we go to the Lord's table and we remember his death on the cross, that this evening we would see Jesus. We commit our study to you now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Anytime we approach a portion of scripture, of course, we ask the important introductory questions. Who, 
Who is the author of any portion of scripture? The human author, in this case, it's David. What is the author describing or addressing at the time? The who is clear, it's David. The superscription at the beginning of Psalm 22 tells us that to the chief musician set to the the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. David is the human author, but the, the what question is a bit unclear from the substance of the psalm. What is David describing in Psalm 22? And I would offer for you a summary to prepare us for closer examination of this psalm on the back of your notes. I've copied a, a brief paragraph from Bible commentator Alan Ross. And here's what, what he says, no known incident in the life of David fits the details of this psalm. The expressions describe an execution, not an illness. Yet that execution is more appropriate to Jesus' crucifixion than David's experience. The gospel writers also saw connections between, between some of the words in, in this psalm and other events in Christ's passion. Also, Hebrews 2.12 quotes Psalm 22.22. Thus, the church has understood this psalm to be typological of the death of Jesus Christ. This means that David used many poetic expressions to portray his immense sufferings, but these po poetic words became literally true of the suffering of Jesus Christ at his enemy's hands. The interesting feature of this psalm is that it does not include one word of confession of sin. No imprecation against enemies. It's primarily the account of a righteous man who is being put to death by wicked men. And here in Psalm 22, David is describing the suffering of of crucifixion. Look quickly at verse 16. The piercing of the hands and the feet. But he wrote of it, David wrote of this some 1,000 years before Christ, a, a time when Jewish capital punishment was by stoning and Roman crucifixion had yet to be invented. But nonetheless, there is no doubt that Psalm 22 points to Jesus Christ. In fact, some 22 messianic prophecies are fulfilled um, from Psalm 22 in the person of Jesus Christ as verified by the New Testament. There in the foyer as you came through the doors um, on the, the kiosk there I, I prepared and, and printed this piece here that highlights messianic prophecies in the Psalms. And if you picked up a copy of this, you'll notice there somewhere in the middle Psalm 22 and the multiple fulfillments of Psalm 22 that are named and claimed in the New Testament scripture text. But beyond our questions about the authorship, that's David, or the occasion for the writing of this psalm, we'll we'll look to the literary structure of it, and this is what I've written at the top of your notes there. Like all Hebrew poetry, Psalm 22 is written with very clear structure. Verses one through 21 are a lament, a plea for help. Verses 22 through 31 are the answer and victory. Furthermore, verse one poses a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, the the question there in verse number one, you look to verse 21, there is the answer. You have answered me. And so, we, we see a structure here. Additionally, verses one through 21 
include a series of six changes, and again, I'm reading from the top of, of your notes, six changes from me to yet you, to I to but you. And there's a toggling back and forth um, between those pronouns that will give us insight here in a few moments. Some of these things will make sense, Lord willing, as we work through the psalm. Let's study it this way. Number one, Jesus' sufferings. Jesus' sufferings follow as I read Psalm 22, beginning in verse number one again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. Of course, Psalm 22, verse one is most familiar to us because those were the very words of Jesus from the cross when God the Father turned his back on God the Son, a phenomenon that is very hard to understand. One author writes that the the mystery of that is so great and imponderable that it's not surprising that Martin Luther is said to have gone into seclusion for a long time trying to understand this, and he came away as confused as when he began. How does God the Father turn his back on or forsake, turn his face away from God the Son? It speaks of Jesus' spiritual sufferings there, letter A. Jesus' spiritual sufferings. For you see, Jesus not only bore the sin of man, he actually became the sin of man on man's behalf in order to satisfy God's justice. And because God's eyes are too pure to behold evil, he cannot look on wickedness, Habakkuk 1 verse 13. God the Father turned away and he forsook his son when Jesus was on the cross. And in that hour, the the separation, it was not one of of nature or of essence or of substance, but the intimate fellowship of God the Father and God the Son was severed because of the presence of sin. And let me assure you that eternal damnation is much more than the suffering of hellfire. Although it is that to be sure, literally, hellfire, fire, but it will also be the suffering of separation from God, and that's what Jesus Christ experienced on our behalf when he hung on the cross, and he was for that time separated from his Father to reconcile us to God. Jesus' sufferings were spiritual sufferings in verses 1 and 2. There's more if we skip down to verses six, seven, and eight. Verse six, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. This is letter B, Jesus' mental sufferings. Jesus' mental sufferings, and you can imagine with me how that Jesus suffered the agony mentally because of the taunting there of the crowd. Matthew 27 records the insults and the blasphemies that were hurled at Jesus during his trial and during his scourging, and and there as he hung on the cross. In fact, in direct fulfillment of, of this psalm, the people wagged their heads. This is Matthew 27, verses 39 to 41. I should have given to you to you there as a cross-reference. Matthew 27, 39 to 41. Those at the cross, they said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. He trusted God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. 
And Jesus must have been mentally tormented in wanting to defend himself and set the record straight. For he was being verbally taunted and verbally abused and, and accused and assaulted. And yet the Bible tells us he held his peace and he answered nothing. Isaiah the prophet prophesied that Jesus, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, Jesus opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7. And Jesus knew God's will for him was to go to the cross, but the mental agony of choosing to obey in that moment. I'm sure that at times you do battle in your own mind, in your own heart, when you are being accused and criticized and verbally assaulted, and inside you are screaming in defense of yourself. It takes all of the willpower that you can muster to bite your tongue, to keep your mouth shut. And when you walk away from that that situation, you're still screaming in your mind that the mental suffering that Jesus would have experienced there. But of course, the most visible, the most graphic of of Jesus' sufferings was not spiritual or mental, um, letter C, physical, Jesus' physical sufferings. And I would point you to verses 12 and following. Verse number 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Bashan was famous for its lush grasses and lush pastures and, and if you were a cow, from Bashan, you were a well-fed cow. You were the fatted calf. This is where, where cattle were, were raised and they were strong and large. They gape, verse 13, they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and it has melted within me. Very descriptive language here. And in the the words of Hebrew poetry, we understand the image of being poured out, the bones out of joint, the the melting um, of the inner man there. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Just the dryness. We remember, of course, how that when Jesus hung on the cross, they offered him something to drink. Verse number 16, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. How do you do that? Maybe you're stretched out so tightly. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Because this is quite a catalog of, of evil. And everything is described in such a, a bestial way that the crowds being like animals. And the, the hor- horrific bloodthirst for Jesus and his bones come out of joint and he has a raging thirst and his hands and feet are pierced and people stared at his nakedness as others bartered for his clothes. And all of this physical suffering was done for you and, and for me. As the hymn writer put it, Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. 
And so Jesus suffered. There's, there's no argument about that. There was spiritual suffering. There was mental suffering. There was physical suffering. But what was Jesus thinking on that occasion as he hung on the cross? There, th- this is the second side of verses 1 through 21. And we, we've just covered the me verses there in those, those little um, portions, verses 1 and 2, verses 6 through 8, verses 12 through 18. Th- these are the, the me verses. And now we can look at the you verses in which the sufferer, the one who is suffering here, turns from looking at himself and, and identifying his condition, me, verses 1 and 2, verses 6 through 8, verses 12 through 18. And he, he turns now and he, he's looking to the Father and he's describing his trust. That's number two, Jesus trusts. And in the, in the controversial, albeit a blockbuster movie, The Passion of the Christ, some 12, 14 years ago now, in The Passion of the Christ, Jesus was always looking to his mother, Mary. If you ever watch that film, it depicts Jesus always looking to Mary for support, for strength. But I would object and say Mary could offer Jesus nothing. In fact, Jesus had to offer Mary something. Jesus asked John to care for Mary. Mary could not help Jesus in that moment. Jesus' trust was in his heavenly Father. And these verses are telling us what in fact Jesus was thinking, what was going through his mind as he put his trust in letter A, God's character. God's character. And we're gonna go back and and look at verses three through five. Psalm 22 verse three, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. One writer put it this way, he needs not to distrust in the darkness what he trusted in the light. In other words, if one can trust God when times are good, then why why should one distrust him when times are bad? You see, when there is suffering in your life and you are compelled to think about your circumstances and your condition, do you think thoughts of God, his holy character, his faithfulness, his care, in that you have trusted him in the good days when the sun is shining? Can you trust him now in the dark days? And the logic is that What God has done before, he can do again because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is immutable and God is holy and just and loving and good and omniscient and wise and faithful and because the character of God proven to mankind in the past, there's confidence in God for the future. That's Jesus' trust in God's character. But but also, Jesus trusted in, letter B, God's care. God's care and then look with me at verse number nine. But you, so, so we are now looking at the second person pronouns here, the, the yous. Uh, Roman numeral number one in your notes, Jesus' sufferings, it was all the, the, the me or the I. Now it's the you. Jesus' trust is in God's character and God's care. Verse number nine, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I, will, I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. 
Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And we might say from day one, God cared for the one now suffering. Of course, Jesus' human birth was not day one for Jesus. There is no day one. There's no day zero. Of course, Jesus is the eternal God, having no beginning and no end. John chapter one, he was in the beginning with God. He was God. But we understand the, the explanation here of God's care from the beginning of Jesus' incarnation in coming to earth. And Jesus trusted God's care. Letter C, God's compassion. God's compassion. And here we now jump to verse 19. Again, the second person pronouns, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And this is now a turning point in the psalm. Again, as I wrote at the top of your notes, there's divisions. Verses one through 21 is a lament. There's a cry for for help from the one who is his suffering and declaring his trust upon God. And now, in the following verses, 22 through 31, we'll call this Jesus' victory. Jesus' victory. And only in the mind of God could such an amazing victory come from such deep suffering. It begins with a, a celebration. The celebration, letter A, great celebration. And again, without unnecessary commentary, allow me to simply read, beginning in verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. In In Jewish law, It was written, and I know we're not Jews in this case, we're not practicing Judaism, but there might be something we can learn from them. In Jewish law, it was written that if a prayer had been answered by God, then a celebration should be held to tell of God's goodness. And that's what's happening here. There's a great celebration to tell of God's goodness in delivering this one who is suffering. Then there's also, let her be, a great conquest. A great conquest, verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. How relevant is that for us today? Verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship and those who go down to the dust shall bow before him even he who cannot keep himself alive A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Psalm 22 is authored by David under inspiration of the Spirit of God. 
on an occasion that we're unable to identify. But when we come to the pages of the New Testament, we find Jesus citing this very psalm from the cross. We find the apostles and the New Testament authors referencing and naming Psalm 22. Without a doubt, this is a messianic psalm. And this evening, I show you Jesus. So what do we do with this? How do we respond? Let me answer that with this illustration. It was in 1633. The Dutch artist Rembrandt painted a portrait titled The Raising of the Cross. The painting shows many hands pushing and pulling a large wooden cross to raise it into its place. The body of Jesus is already attached to that cross with spikes through his hands and his feet. Jesus is being raised so that he may undergo his punishment of death by crucifixion, and we understand that image. But as you look at the painting, something stands out very clearly. At the base of the cross, in Rembrandt's painting, the the raising of the cross, and you can look this up later, at the base of the cross um, is a strange-looking man wearing a blue hat and a blue shirt who definitely does not look like anyone else in the painting. In fact, the colors alone stand out in contrast to the rest of the painting, and not just now, but at some point you Google this and you can see this. Rembrandt painted himself into that painting, into the raising of the cross, by placing himself at the base of the cross and the middle of the painting. Rembrandt was saying something very clearly. And here's what he was saying. I was there too. I'm responsible as, as much as anyone for Jesus going to that cross. Rembrandt put himself near the cross. He put himself at the foot of the cross. He put himself beneath the cross as Jesus was hung on that tree. As we go in just a moment to the Lord's table, I want us to bridge the gap from the ancient Psalm 22 to the first century crucifixion of Jesus. Go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter six. I'll conclude with this and and we'll sing a hymn. Romans chapter six. What do we do? How do we respond to Psalm 22, to the raising of the cross, to our remembrance around the Lord's table? Allow me just to read from Romans six. You're familiar with it. What shall we say then, Romans six? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together, or better, since we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died or since we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In a moment when we go to the table and as we reflect on the image of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, put yourself there and recognize that your union with Christ in Christ has been nailed to the cross. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let me pray. Oh God, this evening we ask that you would show us Jesus. In the psalm of David, Psalm 22. In the image of Rembrandt as he portrayed the crucifixion of of Jesus. In the, the symbolism of the Lord's table, the bread and the cup. And Lord, may we recognize our union with Christ, how that we have died to sin. May we no longer live in it. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.